Well, good morning, everyone. I am back from the leper colony, and it's good to be here in church on Sunday morning, and good to see all of you guys here this morning. Um, so thankful to Matt Levesque for just taking a little bit of his time to share his heart, and I appreciate his outlook. You know, God has put it on his heart to be a servant in the community, and as he and I were talking about it, I said, you know, Matt, I just think that's a great model for people within churches just to realize that we can get involved. And if you know Matt, if you've ever had coffee with Matt, you, you know that Matt's just a regular guy. And, and he's stepping up in the community because he cares about people. I've had the joy of uh, knowing him for quite some time. I, I actually was youth pastor to his sons for a little while and uh, just grateful to see what God's doing in his life. Now, as we step into the new year, I, I want to share uh, what happened with a group of 12 of us just a couple of months back in November. We went through a process called Strat Ops. Now, when you think of the word Strat Ops, you need to think of strategic and operations, and then you kind of mash those two things together. So it's not just about developing a vision, but it's putting plans into motion to see that vision come to life. And I want to share with you a vision that God has placed on our heart as a church for the next 10 years. Now, the way that you can think about this vision is by looking at a picture frame. And within this picture frame, um, our vision is contained within the boundaries, right, of our values and our mission. And then milestones and pathway, where do we want to go and how do we want to get there? When you think about going somewhere and you think about a picture and perspective, the distant horizon represents where you're heading. And isn't that an important question to ask before you take a trip? Where am I going, right? If you don't know where you're going and you get in a car, then you're driving around aimlessly and you're really just going nowhere. Well, our distant horizon and if you can see from the back, there's a little white church that represents Osterville Baptist Church in 10 years, is framed by this vision statement. We are called to advance God's kingdom on Cape Cod by inspiring, training, and mobilizing transformative leaders. Now, on down the road, right, is the background and those are going to represent four large goals that we, we hope and pray to achieve in the next three years. I will share with those with you next week. The midground represents a one-year theme that we are going to set out on to achieve this year. Last year, we talked about two things, two values. You remember them? Generosity and family. This year, our one-year theme is going to be transformative leadership. And the foreground is the road right in front of you. You better pay attention to that, huh? Someone can walk out in front of you. There can be objects on the road. The road could curve. So if you're looking off at the distant horizon, not paying attention to the foreground, you run things over. That's what happens. Well, we also have three teams in motion right now that are taking care of what's important now. And I'll talk to you about that in about three weeks. So again, we're talking this year about transformative leadership. Now, 
I know what many of us think when we hear the word leadership. The big question on our mind is, am I a leader? Or you might think of it more in this way. I don't think I'm a leader. I don't think I have the qualities of a leader. I don't even know if I want to be a leader. I've noticed over the years as I've been involved in church and church life that leadership seems to have this mystique about it where either one, many of us are just sitting around waiting to be tapped on the shoulder. Maybe after 10 years have passed, then finally someone will tap us in in and say, okay, you've put in your time, now it's time to start serving, you can join a uh, a committee within the church. Or others of us think that there's all this red tape and boundaries, and I can understand why you would think that way. When I was first walking with Jesus at 18 years old, I really wanted to grow in my relationship with him and start serving. Well, what did I do? I did what a lot of us do when we become serious about our faith. I started going to every content class available, every Sunday school program available. And as I was sitting in these classes, I began to form a thought in my head that said, I don't think I could be a leader anytime soon. Well, why did that happen? I I think it was unwitting. I don't think there was any intentionality or design behind it. But as I was listening to the Sunday school teachers teach, I heard them spouting off scriptures from all over the Bible. And I was like, I don't have all of that stuff memorized. And and sometimes they would even get into like memorizing rote minutia details from the Bible. Like how many stones were contained in Aaron's ephod and what each stone was. And some of you are like, I don't even know what Aaron's ephod is. That's okay. The point is, is I saw those things and I interacted with those things. I thought to myself, I don't think I could ever be a leader. And we do that sometimes. We, we unwittingly create red tape or barriers or purity tests that leave many gifts within the body feeling like they can't be a transformative leader. But obviously my perspective changed along the way. And one of the most significant ways that my perspective changed happened as I read the Gospels, and I saw who Jesus selected and how he transformed the lives of the people he selected and how those people became leaders. That's the master's plan, and that's what we're going to be talking about for the next so many weeks. Now, as we think about this plan Have you ever considered how odd Jesus' approach was to reaching the world? Think about it for a minute. If you were going to reach the world, if you had the skill set that Jesus had, how would you go about reaching the world? I know what I would do. I would get multitudes of people. I would wow them with miracles. I would set up these big programs that got everybody involved, and I would go after it that way. I would also use all of the, the latest and the greatest techniques, whether it involves marketing or sales, uh, whether it involves social media, and I would try to reach people that way. But that's not what Jesus did. You see, Jesus, his way of reaching the world, his method, was people. And not like hundreds of thousands of people, or even tens of thousands, or a thousand, or even a hundred people. No, Jesus' strategy concentrated on a few individuals. We see this beginning in John chapter 1. He first reaches out to two guys, John and Andrew, and it happens 
quite by happenstance, he's going to see John the Baptist. John the Baptist points him out and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then two of his disciples leave him, John the Baptist, and they go to Jesus. And they said, can we follow you? And Jesus says to them, come and see. It's an observational approach. It's the type of approach where he's placing the emphasis on association of these individuals journeying with him, which means that in Jesus' mind, the most powerful sermon for him would be his life and not hundreds and hundreds of teachings in a classroom setting that he could give for them. In fact, later on in John 14, when he is talking about the way, how you become saved, one of the disciples says, well, how are we going to know the way? And Jesus then points to himself and he says, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Meaning, you already know everything you need to know because you've been walking with me. You've been observing me. That leads us to perceive an important principle about transformative leadership. You see, transformation happens one changed life at a time. And true transformational impact happens through a life-on-life approach. It's not through hurting people through systems, but it's more one leader taking another leader along and showing them the way. That's why Jesus didn't work through the institutions and the programs of his day. He worked through a few people. He did this, and I want you to really listen in on this point. He did this because he knew that the world can only change as individuals in the world are changed. And individuals cannot change except as they come into a life-giving relationship with the Master, Jesus. That's the Master's plan. So first it's John and Andrew, and then Andrew goes and he gets his brother Peter And then along the way to Galilee, Philip comes in, and then Philip, he goes and he gets Nathaniel. And then later, as they head back to Galilee, James, the brother of John, comes. And then they head over into Capernaum, and then they pick up Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. In Luke 6, we come to realize that Jesus then identifies 12 who would be his disciples and then become apostles who would be the first leaders of the church. Now think about this for a minute. What do you think of when you think of a leader? Uh, What does this person act like? What kind of qualities does this person possess? Maybe today we really need to ask the question, what do they look like? A lot of times people are drawn to people just simply because of how they look. What is this person like? And if we're asking that question, now transport yourself back into the time where Jesus is selecting these first 12 disciples and ask yourself the question, would you have thought any of these disciples qualified as leaders through the grid that you've just set up in your mind? I don't think we would have. You look at these men that he selected, none of them held prominent positions in the synagogue, and and Jesus' work was religious work. He was trying to change the religious institutions, and none of them had anything to do with that. A lot of them were day laborers. 
Some of them had zero education, and if they had any education, it was through an apprentice-style relationship. I mean, we're not talking about people with BAs and masters. Uh, A lot of them didn't have wealth in their background. Two of them may have, the brother or the sons of Zebedee, because they came from a, a fishing industry, but most of the disciples came from the low-class section of Galilee. In fact, only one of them came from a more influential part of that region. And you know who that was? Judas Iscariot. And here's the other thing. They had a lot of flaws. You start reading the Gospels and you see the warts on these guys, okay? Uh, they could be impulsive, temperamental, easily offended. They had all of the prejudices of their environment. They stumbled and fumbled and bumbled and they fell. I look at the Gospel of Mark and you just read a a short sequence of it, like chapters 8 through chapters 12 or so, and you see how these guys fall on their nose over and over again. It begins with Jesus declaring who he is and then Peter comes and he rebukes him later because Jesus says that he's going to the cross. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Then the disciples, they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus comes back down from the Mount of Transfiguration with them and he finds a group of his disciples are unable to cast out a demon. You know why they couldn't? Because they weren't praying. And then there's another person who's casting out demons successfully, and the disciples want that person to stop because he's not a part of the club. They bring children to Jesus. The disciples tell him to get the children out of here. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And get this, John and James, in front of the whole group, approach Jesus and say, Jesus, we want the best positions out of everyone. I mean, they go total alpha in front of the whole group and say, we want to be the top dogs here, which then starts a big fight. So as you look at this, what are we supposed to take away about these disciples? Well, we're not supposed to take away that they're a bunch of morons and we would have done a better job than them, that's for sure. We're supposed to see average Joes, a normal cross-section of society. They weren't any worse than a regular person, but they certainly weren't people who had it all together. They wouldn't have been like social media influencers or stars or people going to work wearing power suits or politically savvy, sophisticated types or whatever other measures that we admire today and consider successful. No, there's only one thing that is consistent about these people. The only reason they became anything was because they followed Jesus. They learned from Jesus, and they applied his teaching, however imperfectly. As Jesus empowered their flawed leadership, he did so with his perfect leadership. And that's what it's all about. Now, if you were to look at Jesus and his approach and his plan, would you have considered his plan successful if you were looking at it either at the time of his life or the decades that follow his death and resurrection? And I want to suggest that by many of our matrix, we would say he didn't succeed. Why? Well, he had no major impact on the religious institution of that day and that time or the decades to follow. 
And, and really, the numbers of people following Jesus after his death was marginal. It tells us in Acts chapter 1 that there were 120 praying together, so there's about 120 in Jerusalem, Christians. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared to 500 followers. So you're looking at maybe 500 people following Jesus after his resurrection. Is that a success? Is that reaching the world? No. But... If you look at what he did through the people that he raised up as leaders, you see a much different picture. You see, those leaders raised up new leaders. As immature leaders became mature leaders, they started raising up new leaders. And over the course of time, significant transformation was taking place all over the world. In fact, I want to give you a picture of what that looked like through the eyes of uh, historian Rodney Stark. He gives us a Uh, what it must have looked like for the Christian growth in the first three centuries of the church. And as you look at the church growing, just consider these numbers for a minute. For year 50, he would say there was probably a few thousand. We know that in Acts there was an example of two or so thousand coming to Christ in Jerusalem, but it wasn't very many Christians. You get to the year 100, there's about 8,000 or so, maybe a little more than that. You get to the year 150, there is less than 40,000 Christians. So we're talking about 100 years after the death of Jesus, and Christianity wouldn't even be considered at this point a minor world religion. You get into the year 200, there's around 210,000. 250, 1.1 million. Now we're at 2% of the total population of Rome at this time. Year 300, 6 million. We're almost at 10%. And then the year 350, 32 million, which represents 52.8% of Rome. You wonder why Constantine around that time said that the Roman Empire was now a Christian empire. Could it be that more than half of the people there were Christians? That's what it was. There was this quiet internal revolution that took place over time. And it shows us that the master's plan is really, really effective when Christians humbly exercise leadership to to advance his kingdom and accomplish his purposes. This really leads us then to be able to define what transformative leadership is. This is my own definition, and I hope that as you look at this definition that you'll see that any believer can find their way into this definition. The definition is this, transformative leader, leadership is sacrificially leveraging my God-given influence and gifts to advance his kingdom. Let me say it again. Transformative leadership is sacrificially leveraging my God-given influence and gifts to advance his kingdom. Let's work through that backwards for a minute. It all begins, transformative leadership begins with the realization that it's about whose kingdom? His, not my own. It's not about me. 
It's all about Jesus. Remember, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's why our mission statement over here begins with the idea of worship, because worship says that my supreme or chief purpose in life is not about fulfilling my desires, my wants, my needs, but it's about seeing and savoring the beauty of who God is. And then when I come to that realization, it changes my desires. His plans, His purposes, His ways become my chief aim. Now, we also see that transformative leadership involves using my, my God-given influence and gifts. You see, God has put all of us within concentric circles of community. And these are our communities. They're the communities that He wants us to care about and pray for and seek good on their behalf. If you think of it in terms of a concentric circle, it begins with my family. And then it moves out to my church family, and in my neighborhood, and in my work, and in maybe my region, and then my nation, and onto the ends of the earth. And why is God placing me within these communities? I, I've come to believe that He puts us in these communities because we will uniquely care for these people, love these people, and seek good on their behalf like no one else will. We have the greatest amount of influence in their life. You think about it as a parent. No one is going to want good for your child and, and care about their spiritual welfare like you will. Or grandparent, the same thing applies to you. Or if you think of it in terms of your community, if you live in the town of Barnstable or Sandwich or any other part of the Cape, no one's going to care about the place you live like you will. Or your work. No one's going to have the unique interaction with your co-workers and friends like you do. And I would submit to you that God doesn't want you to outsource that away. He doesn't want you to outsource your parenting. Or He doesn't want you to outsource how you interact with friends and co-workers. He doesn't want you to say, here's the latest and greatest sermon from that preacher that knocks it out of the park every week. He wants you to live out the real live sermon of Jesus in front of them and to share your heart with them. I also have come to realize that a lot of us have various passions within the community. And I think God puts those passions in our heart for a reason. I, I've been a pastor for some time now and I, I, I'll have people within the church come to me and say, you know, I am so passionate about whatever it is, maybe it's food insecurities or homelessness or other concerns within the community like immigration or something along those lines. And, and they come in and they're fired up about it and they're like, why isn't everybody within the church passionate about this right now? Here's the thing. I believe God's put that passion on your heart because he wants you to be responsible for it. He has other passions for other people in the church. When you feel passionate about something, God's tapping you on the shoulder and he's saying, get to work. It's time for you to start leveraging your leadership to affect change in this area. That's why I loved what Matt Levesque had to say. Again, here's this average Joe guy. He's getting involved in the community and God just keeps tapping on his shoulder more and more and more to use his gifts. And that's how we go about it, isn't it? I use my gifts to impact the community. 
Uh, some of us, God has given the ability to lead organizationals through strategic planning. Now, that's not a lot of us. It's some of us. But if that's true of you, leverage that gift. Others of us have organizational skills. Leverage that gift. Some of us are incredible relational people. We just can keep relationships in our mind and care for people and connect people. Leverage that gift. Others of us are builders. God's designed us to look at plans and to make them a reality. Others of us are the conceptualizers of the plans. Leverage the gift. The whole point that I'm making here is that the master needs all different types, all different gifts to advance his kingdom. When you look at the disciples, some of them are fishermen. One's a tax collector. Later on down the road, Paul, he is a guy that was trained as a tent maker, but he was also a Pharisee in training. Luke was a physician. All different types God uses to advance his kingdom. Finally, I hope you'll see that transformative leadership requires sacrifice. That's right. This is one of the most important points for our world today because so many of us are not leveraging our influence and our gifts because either one, we're complacent, two, we're distracted, or three, we're apathetic. You know, life on life work isn't for the faint of heart. It requires real sacrifice. Last year, we were talking a lot about generosity, and I was so blown away as you, the church, responded to the values and you gave over an abundance this year, or this past year, 2020. But you know, generosity is about so much more than our money. It starts with money, and, and I really believe that because Jesus said, what? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. When I'm willing to kind of give of my resources to something, my heart follows along with that. But I believe that if Jesus were talking to our generation today, he would also have said, where your time is, there your heart is also. Because so many of us are unwilling to consistently give our time to something. Let me ask you, are you leveraging your time to advance his kingdom? I hope as you're taking all of this in, as you're thinking about the scriptures, as you're putting that definition together, you're beginning to see that, yes, indeed, you are a transformative leader, or you could be. Now you've got to ask the question, if you've never exercised your leadership gifts for the sake of the kingdom, how do I start? How do I do this? I remember back my freshman year of high school, uh, I joined the swim team. And I got to tell you, if I knew anything about swimming at that point, like what it involved, I never would have set foot in that pool. Uh, for one thing, I had no idea at the first day of practice that they were going to hold up this little Speedo and say, go put this thing on. I'd have been like, no thanks, we don't roll like that. But, you know, peer pressure and everything, you end up doing a lot of things. So the next thing that I realized as I was getting into swimming was that there is a high upfront physical cost that you have to pay. You know how they start training you in swimming? 
It involves a three-week course where they take you into a classroom and they tar- start talking to you about buoyancy and how body mechanics works and how the circulatory takes, system takes oxygen that you're breathing in and, and puts it all throughout your body. No, that's not what they do. The coach says, get in the pool, swim from that end of the pool, and swim back. And after you do that, and you're terrible at breathing, and you have no stroke, you get back, and your muscles are screaming, and you're panting like a dog on a 100-degree day in the summer. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, that was a great practice. I'm ready to get out of the pool, get showered off, go home and eat like I've never eaten before, and I'll come back again tomorrow, and I'll try that again. And coach says, ha ha, that's funny. Do 20 more of those, and then we'll talk about your next sets. Well, it turns out that over time, even though that front-end cost was kind of big, they learned how to swim. Because the best way to learn how to swim is to get into the pool. The best way to start becoming a transformative leadership is to leverage your influence and your gifts. Now, my coach knew the first day that I was jumping in the pool, that I was not going to be an Olympic-caliber swimmer. There was just no thought in her mind that I would be that level. No, she knew that it was going to be pretty ugly. And here's the thing. Jesus knows when I started leveraging my gifts as a leader that that was going to be pretty ugly. And in all of that, those things that he knows about us, he meets us with grace. You know what Jesus knows about you? Jesus knows that you're never going to feel like you're ready to start leading. Some of us are waiting for that mystical experience where he taps us on the back of the head and says, all right, you've kind of crossed all these thresholds and now I can use you. If you're waiting for that, you're going to be waiting your entire Christian life. Too many of us have these barriers in our mind. We think to ourselves, well, I haven't been walking with Jesus long enough. Or we think that I've got to be reading my Bible at least an hour a day and praying for an hour a day. Or someone along the way said to us, you're not ready. Or at least their body language said to us that you're not ready. But if we convince ourselves that we have to reach planes, we're never going to start leveraging our influence and gifts. It's just patently false to think that you have to start that way. In fact, what I find incredible about Jesus' approach is he starts empowering his disciples before they even really believed in him. It's not until you get to Mark 8 and Matthew 16 where Peter first declares that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Before then, they're just trying to figure it out like everyone else is. And you realize that the disciples would have been viewed as kids in our own day? Their age range, if you look it up, is somewhere between the age of 14 and mid-20s. In fact, one of the reasons that Peter was considered a a leader of the group was because he was probably the oldest amongst them. He was married, which meant he was probably in his mid-20s, almost 30. So it turns out that a lot of the things that we as churches put around leadership are not things that Jesus cared very much about. Isn't that incredible? We create more boundaries than he created. What I've found about leadership is this. It's not about experience or age. It's a state of heart. 
When you look at the disciples, they were green, but they possessed other qualities. They were teachable. They could be slow to learn, but they were always open to learn. They were honest men. They were willing to confess their needs. They could be incredibly awkward, but they had big hearts. And they cared about God's honor and God's name. Here's something I want you to never forget about leadership. Heart and character are far greater leadership qualities than competence and likability. You know, we get the cart before the horse in that. Sometimes we're looking for people with all of the competence and they have none of the character. And then we wonder why leaders fail. Jesus starts with the heart and the character, and then he says, you know what, I'll work on the competence. Far more important. Here's another thing he knows. He knows that you need to be empowered. In his ministry, that's what he did. He says to the disciples, come and see. They watch, and then he says, you feed them. It's your turn to get in the game. The church is supposed to be an empowerment, a place of empowerment. Paul said this to pastors in Ephesians 4. He says, your job is to what? Equip people to do the ministry, not do the ministry yourself. So if pastor, if the pastor's not equipping others to do the ministry, if they're doing the ministry, then they're not taking care of the most important responsibility on their job description. I love these words from Ed Stetzer. He said that, Pastors and staff who spend all of their time doing the work of the ministry while not equipping others are not fulfilling a biblical role. They are simply being a biblical Christian. To be a biblical Christian is the responsibility of every believer on the planet, and nobody gets financial support for being a biblical Christian. The financial support of the church body comes when you are actively equipping and training others. Here's the thing. That's not just true for pastors. It's true for leaders in the church. In fact, if you have a leadership responsibility in the church, a title, if you will, I want to give you some principles about empowerment that you need to take seriously. The first principle is this. One of the greatest acts of leadership is investing in your replacement. That's number one on your job description. If you look at the life of Moses, Moses had Joshua. Joshua had none, no one. And what happens after Joshua dies? The judges, right? It's a big leadership vacuum that turns into a mess. When we don't take that job responsibility seriously, it leads to big problems. That's why Paul said to Timothy to do this in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others. There's only three reasons that we don't share leadership. The first is I'm insecure. I'm afraid that someone else is going to outshine me. The second is I'm proud. I think I'm the only one good enough to do it. And the third is that I have created an idol. And that idol is ministry. Here's a second principle. Invest in young leaders and let them exercise real leadership. You know, I'm a pastor today because when I was 
18 years old, someone trusted me with real leadership responsibility. And that's important. Sometimes when we're raising a leader in the church, we're like, okay, well, first start with all of these kind of rote tasks. Instead of giving people responsibilities that really make them feel passionate about leadership and and transformation, like life change stuff, like going and praying with people and, and praying for people who are coming to Christ and going into conversations that you're seeing real life change happen. I remember when I first started learning to play the guitar, my, my guitar teacher, we were junior high students at the time, understood something about getting guys passionate about guitar. You see, he knew that we were walking into those guitar lessons because we'd been listening to the radio and our heads were filled with rock and roll solos, right? So you get that guitar in your hand and in two weeks you want to just be like shredding like Eddie Van Halen. That's your goal. Well, a lot of the guitar teachers would start you off with, get this, Mary had a little lamb. Now, what like rock legend going into guitar class wants to start with Mary had a little lamb? So what did the guitar teacher do? He said to us, what are the songs you're listening to right now on the radio? We'd tell him, and then he'd put us off to learning those songs. It was empowering. I really wanted to learn guitar at that point. It was so fun and inspiring. The same thing's true in Christian leadership. When you take people along with you to do the stuff that gets you fired up, it gets them fired up too. Here's one more. Be willing to take risks on people. I know that sometimes we're afraid to take risks on people because we've taken risks and they've let us down. But I got to tell you, it's not about you. Remember, worship, it's not about me. Jesus had Judas let him down, but I see nowhere in the scriptures where Jesus felt embarrassed that Judas had let him down. Why? Because Jesus knew that people were flawed, and he took a risk on Judas, and Judas, of course, became the betrayer. The same thing is true for us. We'll invest in some lives, and and those people will move on and become leaders. We'll invest in other lives, and those people will say, you know what? No thanks. I'm not interested in this. I heard this quote that has stuck with me over the years. It says, the same sun. So think of the sun as the input that you invest in a person's life. The same sun that melts the ice, that softens the heart, can also harden the clay. Sometimes I invest in a life and the person flourishes. Other times, they turn away and they say, no thanks. And over the years, I've had both happen to me. And you know what the biggest mistake is when it does happen to you? The biggest mistake you can make is to say, I'm not going to invest in people or I'm going to set up all of these weird measures around people. The best thing you can do is to say, I'm going to keep investing because I know God's going to use this. Third thing, Jesus knows that his vision for your life is always greater than your own vision for your life. What do you think Peter's vision for his life was? I think about his world and I'm saying, 
There's no way this guy knew that he was going to become a foundational leader to the church. His life was pretty simple, wasn't it? He was going to go out. He was going to work his nine to five. He was going to be happy in his marriage. He was going to raise his kids. And if he could really, really achieve things, he would salt away enough for retirement so he could play golf every single day in a retirement community. I mean, that was what Peter wanted. But then Jesus comes along and he says, I got a bigger dream for you, Peter. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And and you're going to do such foundational work for my church, and it's going to spread all over the world. Isn't that incredible? Our our vision for our life is always small and it's self-focused, but Jesus takes that vision and he just blows it up. That's why we got to look at other leaders in the church who are coming along and and not say things to them like, you're not ready. That's not a good vision. Now, that might be true in the moment. Maybe they need to have a little more discipline and learn responsibility before they take something big on. Isn't there a better way to say it? Like, you're going to be able to do this. If one of your kids comes to you and says, Mommy, I want to be a doctor when I grow up. You're not going to squash your kid and say, (laughs) Yeah, are you kidding me? You don't even know what one plus one is yet. You're not going to do that. You're going to say, sweetie, you can become a doctor. I believe in you. You've got to say the same thing to people in the church, only don't call them sweetie because they're adults. But believe in them. Fourthly, Jesus knows that you are flawed. You know when he told Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men? It happened right after Peter fell on his knees and he said, depart from me for I am sinful. Peter standing in the presence of Jesus knew that he was unworthy. And if we really understand who Jesus is, we will feel unworthy because he is perfect and I am sinful. He is all competent and I am not so competent by way of comparison. But here's the thing. Jesus' plan for your life is not, again, about you. It's about what he does through you. I've sat down with leaders in the church. I had a dinner recently, and the leader is saying to me, here's all the reasons, here's my list as to why I can't be a leader. And as we worked through it, kind of looked at the person and said, is that it? Like, that's what you got? Think about the disciples. I mean, think about the messes they made. Did Jesus say that to them, that they weren't ready to be a leader? Of course he didn't. He empowered them. I think you are ready. I think you're ready to get in the game. And and this person started exercising transformative leadership. And I got to tell you, they're doing a great job. They're learning. They're picking it up. That's what it's all about. God, I'm never going to measure up to you but you're pleased to qualify me. Your son died in my place. Your spirit empowers me for the work. So as we think about closing this down, I want to just talk about one last thing when it comes to leadership and transformative leadership. Right now uh, is the turning over of the new year, right? And so a lot of us are thinking about our resolutions. And of course, one of the big ones is always diet and exercise, right? Now, when you get into researching diet and exercise, Katie and I have been on 
a journey with this for a little over a year. We've become more conscientious around it because, you know, you start getting closer to your 40s and uh, your weight kind of follows with your age. And uh, what I've learned as I've researched on it is there are a lot of gimmicks out there. A lot. I mean, everybody's got the secret plan that if you only pay 40 bucks, then you could learn the secret plan too. There's those pills out there that are magic pills where they say, if you take this pill and you don't exercise and you eat whatever you want, you're going to lose weight. And it's either one, a lie, or two, it's really unhealthy for you. Or there's all the magic diets out there, right? Think about the paleo diet. Well, we know that evolutionarily speaking, that cavemen ate this sort of diet. And if you follow that kind of diet too, then you're going to be better off. Or you have keto where they're saying that you have to get into ketosis and then you'll just start burning fat or intermittent fasting. And you got people talking about intermittent fasting and saying, well, are you a 16 and 8 intermittent faster? Or do you fast two days a week and five days on with eating food? Or the carnivore diet, which sounds kind of cool, actually. You're just eating meat. You know what, with all of these diets, they're all doing the same thing. They're really just finding different means of helping us to restrict calories. That's what dieting is. Dieting is where I restrict my calories below my maintenance calories to hold my current weight so that my body will go to my fat stores and burn fat. That's what it's doing. So there's nothing mystical about keto or any of the other ones. It's really just they're helping us to achieve that. Same thing with exercise. It turns out that if you want to be fit, if you want to have more muscle, you actually have to put in the work. Well, as I think about transformative leadership, I look at it in a very similar way. It requires consistency and work. But whenever you start a plan, don't pursue it like the Olympians do, right? You don't start dieting and exercising from that perspective where you're like, okay, they're doing six-hour workout regimens a day, so I'm just going to start off with six hours. No, you start small. You start simple. The same thing is true in the Christian life. You don't read the Bible for two hours and pray for two hours and then three days later say, I'm never doing that again. You start off with a 15-minute devotional that gets your heart on fire for Jesus, and then that flows into maybe a 10-minute prayer session with Jesus or whatever that looks like for you. And then you get involved in the church and you start serving and get more consistent in your church attendance. And then from there, you get into the life-on-life dynamic of the church, which is thrive groups or small groups. You know what I find is so incredible about those dynamics? Sometimes when we start walking with Jesus, we think that I got to come in and be involved in everybody's life and know everyone intimately, but it turns out that I can't know that many people in that sort of way. So as I get into a small group, my job is really to get to know those people and care for them, pray for them, love them. And I'm not going to go into that environment selfishly and say, what am I getting out of this small group? I'm going to go in saying, how can I pour into these people? And then you start looking at your relationships and saying, who is God putting on my heart that I desperately want to see influence for Jesus? And I'm not going into that relationship because I have an agenda. I'm going into that relationship because I want to see their good achieved human flourishing as they come to know God. 
And if that person becomes interested in Jesus as you share your heart, you journey with them. You don't outsource them to your favorite preacher. You come alongside and say, let me help you shoulder to shoulder as you grow. That's what transformative leadership's all about, church. And there's someone that really believes that you can do that. And I do too, but this person's more important. Jesus. He really believes you can do it. Now, as we close down before we end our service, I did want to take a minute and just kind of redirect our attention for just a moment and offer up a prayer on behalf of our nation. I don't know about you, but as I was watching the news cycle this week, I just said, boy, we just keep escalating in this country right now. Uh, People are really on opposite ends of the spectrum. To think that people went into our Capitol building in our nation, it was really concerning to me, and I I, I hope it would be concerning to all of us as believers because we're called for believing in our country and having peace in our country. And I just want to pray that God would bring about a transformation in our country and unity. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, this morning as we've been looking at your word, of course our hearts go out uh, to those in our country who are in positions of leadership. And uh, we've got to pray, Lord, um, and ask that you would unify the brokenness, our broken country right now. It really seems like we're in a, a place where we haven't been before as a nation in terms of just the, the hatred and divisiveness that, that's going on right now in a long time. Lord, uh, as we think about those who walked into our Capitol building, we, we are horrified about that, Lord. That's just not right. And we know that as believers that you call us to be people of peace. And even if we disagree with something, Lord, you call us to do it in a, in a peaceful way, in a way that brings honor to Jesus. And so we pray for that. We know, Lord, that sometimes looking at what's happening, happening at the, the national level, sometimes it just feels so big to us. And how do I ever get involved in that or change that? But I know that your word talks to us about being good citizens and at least at our level, being people who care about others and about our community and the place where you've placed us, Lord. So we ask that you'd help us to be good citizens, honoring citizens. We love you and we're grateful for the calling that you put on our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.